coming to you from the Woodland Baptist Ministry Center, home of the Woodland Baptist Church, on the 18th of February, 2024, for richer, for poorer. Have you found your way to James, the first chapter yet? I'm there. You're headed that direction. We're in the, still the opening words of the book of James, and uh, and the mic is now on. <laughs> when uh, when I looked at the book of James, one of the things uh, I mentioned is that it's a tough book to preach on because people's toes get stepped on. And uh, I don't suppose there's another topic, and well, there's other topics, but one controversial topic in Scripture is the use of money. And the reason it's controversial is not because there's anything wrong about talking about it, it's just been used and abused so much. I was thinking back of the years that we've been here and how many times we have even talked about money. Very, very little. Um, we've had some fairly lean times. I remember uh, one of the earliest treasurers that was here when I was here was a man by the name of Bert Weimer. And uh, Bert ran an old saw shop after he had retired from being a logger. And uh, he didn't talk much. He was pretty close to the, played things pretty close to the best. About the only time that he would really open up is when I'd go over to his house and he'd be out in a saw shop, and then he would start talking. My wife could, I'd come back after a couple hours, and he goes, what have you been doing? I said, I've been talking to Bert. And she goes, no, couldn't be. But Bert was our treasurer early on. And uh, you want to know what my starting pay was here? Kind of an interesting thing, I suppose. It was $800 a month. And we had a dairy farmer, so I had all the raw milk that we wanted to drink and all the beef that we wanted to eat. And we had an egg rancher in the congregation, so we had all the eggs that we could handle. So that was our salary. They promised me all meat and eggs and milk and uh, $800 a month. But I remember one time Bert coming to me and uh, he handed me my paycheck and he pulled me aside and he says, it would probably be really good if you don't deposit this until Friday. <laughs> <laughs> so things were pretty, pretty close then at that time. And, uh, but the Lord has been gracious and that's why we, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about money. But James will and does. We're going to look at, at that this morning. And when you first pick up 
your Bible and you open up to James and you start reading, you go, wait a minute, something, something seems amiss here. For he begins with this whole theme of trusting, of testing and trials. And he goes, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives it to you liberally and doesn't upbraid. And don't ask in faith because you shouldn't be doubting and all those kinds of things. And then we come to the passage this morning. And in verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the grass, and the flower falls and his beauty perishes. So also would the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Then he seems to jump back into trials. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And you go, where in the world did this section come from? About the rich and the poor? What? That could have been excised right out of there, and we would have never noticed. But instead, it was inserted right here. And they go, why? Why? And I believe the answer is because it's a key element often in our testing. In the trials that we have in life, in the testing that we have in life, finances usually figure in it some way. Doesn't mean everything is that way, but even health. Someone has poor health, they go to the hospital where they have big doctor's bill they gotta pay for. They own a home or they own a vehicle, and what happens? The refrigerator breaks down, the car breaks down, whatever. We got financial issues that we've got to deal with. And so I don't think James missed by too, too much, talking about this particular theme right here in the midst of trials. And he talks about the lowly brother, basically the one who doesn't have any resources, and the rich in his humiliation, because he does have it. And he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and let the rich one in his humiliation. So wherever place you are in that scale, Lord is going to move you. And in the process, we deal with finances. I mean, it, finances touch so many aspects of our life that we just take it as an integral part of our life. Whether we're paying taxes, or whether we're buying something at the store and we're talking about inflation, or whatever it is, sooner or later we're going to get around and talk about money. And so I thought that this morning, picking up on this theme of testing, 
that we bring out some principles that have to do with finance and the believer in the midst of testing, okay? A passage that I'd like to share with you is found in Proverbs chapter 30. Agur is the, is the writer of this proverb, and he writes these things in Proverbs chapter 30. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty or riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and then say, Who is the Lord? And lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So as he's writing this proverb, he says, I don't want to be so poor that I'm inclined to go and steal and meet my needs that way. And I don't want to be so affluent, so rich, that I go, I don't need God. I'm, I'm doing okay here on my own. And he says, I don't want either one of those uh, things to be true about me. I want um, to always turn to the Lord, and I don't want to profane his name. So with that in mind, I want to pull up a couple principles here, and they're from selected scriptures around, and um, just touch on this idea of finances. I wish I could say that I learned these early on, and I practiced them from my youth, but that would be a lie. It's been something of a process in me, and, uh, and some of you are further along in that process than, than I am. And uh, so if I say something that you go, duh, about, well, that's good that you're practicing that. And if you aren't practicing them, consider these things. So how does God work through our finances? Because we said the principal reason for trials in our life is to build what? A steadfast faith, right? That's one of the reasons why God gives us trials. So that we know that we can go to the Lord time and time again for the solution to the issues of our life. And so our first principle here is how does God work through our finances? He does it to strengthen our dependence in him our dependence, our faith in him. Whenever we have a need, we go, how am I going to resolve this? What am I going to do about this? Whether, like I say, it's a medical bill or something breaks down or needing repair or our normal expenditures take a hit. And we go, how am I going to deal with this? We can go one of two ways. We can either say, well, I'm just going to try and figure this out. 
Or we can say, Lord, what are you trying to teach me here? What are you trying to teach me? And will you show me, and remember one of the verses we were looking at, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, what are you trying to show me about how I should resolve this issue? And one of the things that I, I put in our opening statement, to strengthen our dependence or faith in him, including God's timing, including God's timing. We want to know, God, how are you going to resolve this? And is it something that I need to wait on the Lord to get a resolution? And you'll see some of these things come up in some of the other principles we're going to do. But our inclination oftentimes is, I've got to fix this, I've got to fix it now, and I don't have the resources, so what am I going to do? Well, <laughs> I know what I could do. Open up my wallet, pull out the credit card, hand it to them and say, we'll just push this on down the road a little bit, pay for it this way. When we really don't have the money to do that and the interest rate's going to come and, and bite us, but we say, oh, we'll do that. And that way, uh, we'll take care of this particular issue right now. But God wants to turn our anxiousness into trust. In Matthew chapter 6, we read of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, there's a great passage in that Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where... He's speaking to his disciples, his followers. And in verse 30, we read, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? In other words, God says, I want to build your faith. Don't you realize I'm here for you? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? He says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. In other words, this is a pretty common experience. Christians aren't the only ones that have these kind of issues that they have to face. Unbelievers do as well. He says, but how do we approach them is the difference. He says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows what you need, uh, uh, that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, the Lord, as he's speaking to those on the Sermon on the Mount, says, I know that the momentary affliction that you're feeling will drive you to try and find some answer, and it causes anxiousness in you, but what I want to cause in you 
is more dependence on me. More dependence on me. Paul wrote about a similar theme in Philippians chapter 4. You can turn there if you will. Philippians 4.10. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. And what is he rejoicing about? Well, because the Philippian church had pulled together some money and sent it with Epaphroditus, had sent it to Paul to meet some of his needs because Paul was dealing with being in a prison. And, and so now he's writing this letter, and part of it is thanking, him, thanking them for their ministry to him. And listen to what he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. In other words, I know that you cared about me even when you weren't sending me anything, but now you have been able to send me something. And he says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He says, I've learned this. I love the idea that he says, I learned this. In other words, this is a process that Paul went through. He says, I, did, I wasn't this way all the time, but I've learned to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In every circumstance, every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Apostle Paul says, I've gone through this process, this education, this growing in trust in the Lord. And I've come to the place that when I have a lot, I trust the Lord. And when I have a little, I trust in the Lord. So whether I have a lot or a little, I trust in the Lord. And contentment then is the result. Contentment. So first principle, how does God work through our finances? He strengthens our dependence on him. And including God's timing. So sometimes that means that we have to be still for a little bit and see what the Lord is going to do. In a similar vein, in the years of ministry here, we have seen the aspect of God's timing come to bear. I'll give you an example. The hymn books that you're seeing out of uh, today were not the hymn books we used to have. Well, some of those are still in the cupboard over here. But they were getting really worn and frazzled. In fact, these are following suit. But in, that, in those days, they were getting really beat up and we were putting duct tape along the bindings and stuff like that. And we had come to the conclusion we needed new hymn books. But 
as a congregation, the congregation needed to see that. And so we had gone looking and we'd done some research and we came up with this hymn book. And uh, we had talked about hymn books before that and sort of got the reaction, oh, yes, yeah, probably so, oh yeah, okay, okay. And so we didn't push it. I mean, the hymn books were still holding together with our, our duct tape and whatnot, so we were using them. And one, uh, one day, one of the men in the congregation got up and he goes, we need to buy some hymn books. And he, he says, how much do they cost? And he said, what it was, I can't remember at the time. And he says, so if we, if we got enough for the whole of the congregation, we're going to need this amount of money. Well, it was, it was several hundreds of dollars worth of hymn books. And he says, who's with me? And next week we had enough money for the hymn books we went out and bought them. Okay? It was a matter of God's timing. And everybody then, it wasn't something that we foisted upon the congregation saying, oh, we decided that we need new hymn books. You're going to pay for them whether you like it or not. We're just going to do it. But rather it came from the the congregation, the church family, when everyone said, yes, that's a need, let's do it. And then God provided the resources through the church family and uh, our budget didn't take a hit and the, and the uh, hymn books were purchased. Strengthening our dependence, our faith in him, including God's timing. Well, the second principle is, is like unto it. The second principle of the purpose in God's work in our finances, because we talk about the difference between poor people and rich people, is to develop our trustworthiness. To develop our trustworthiness, recognizing that we are stewards of his resources. Okay? God wants to to build into us the fact that we are can be trusted with his resources. Every financial transaction is an opportunity to prove our trustworthiness to God. And as we prove our trustworthiness to others as well, They'll be drawn to us and want to do business with us if we're in a business uh, relationship. Can we be trusted is the question. And the answer is, yeah. Luke 16, Jesus speaks to, uh, well, Jesus speaks to this issue in Luke 16. And he's talking about um, a dishonest manager. And he, and he says this, one who is faithful, verse 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. 
If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will trust you to be trust you to the true riches? And we already know what the true riches is, the, the weight and glory of, of God and his message. He says, can we be trusted even with a little bit? And the answer should be yes. God is trying to develop in us trustworthiness. But we realize that whether we're, in the world's eyes, rich or poor, whatever we have belongs to the Lord, and how we use that is a commentary on our relationship to him. Remember the story of Jesus as he told about this person who goes in and makes a big fanfare about putting some offering into the offering uh, basket, so to speak. And then along comes the widow with her mites and she drops it in. And the Lord makes comments as she gave more than he did. It wasn't a matter of amount. It was two things. One, her heart and proportion of that giving as she gave more than he gave, even with all the gifts that he would give. So the Lord is looking to check out our heart. And oftentimes, that became an issue. Jesus condemned the Pharisees when he says, here you're really into tithing all this stuff. But if you are supposed to be taking care of your parents, and they come to you and they say, hey son, we could really use some resources. And you go, I'm sorry. The money that I have is the gold of the temple. It's for the Lord's work. And you go, well, wait a minute. How did it become the gold of the temple? Well, I'm a Pharisee. I so designated it. Well, who's going to spend it? Well, I'm a spiritual leader. I'll spend it. So it was a neat dodge around taking care of your parents by saying it's money that's part of the church. When it wasn't part of the church at all, you were still holding on to it. The Lord condemned that big time. So we are all stewards of his resources, whether we have little or much. The third one, one of the ways that the Lord uses finances in testing is to prove his love and to develop our thankfulness. Pastor? Yes. Would you give us two again? Uh, to develop our trustworthiness, recognizing that we are stewards of his resources. Okay? Thank you. Sure. So the third one, to prove his love and develop our thankfulness. Jesus, again, speaking in the Sermon on the Mount on Matthew 7, 11, says, If you who are evil know how to give gifts to your good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? And remember, we said if you're going through a trial... 
and you need wisdom, let him ask of God. He said, if you're going through a trial, let's insert here, if you're going through a trial of money, aren't you going to ask for God's wisdom on how to resolve this issue? It's not your issue alone. It's his issue. Because his issue is you're dealing with his resources. But he wants to prove that he's a good guy who cares for us all. How does, the, how does he show this love? Well, things that we don't often think of. In fact, if your person said uh, concerning their, their accumulation, and we said, well, how did you get that? Well, I've worked hard all my life. And you say, well, so God has been really gracious to you. No, I've done this work by myself. And you say, well, where did your health come from? And how did you get to work? And who kept you safe on the job? And on and on it goes. And we say, oh yeah, I, I guess the Lord's hand was in that, wasn't he? So he wants us to be thankful. Are we thankful for our health, our job, our home, our food? And now a tough one, you ready? Because we were talking about riches, what about the poor guy? He says, well, I don't have anything. And he says, well, are you thankful when someone else meets your need? I won't ask you to raise your hand, but have you ever had a need and someone met your need and you had a hard time receiving it? And you go, was that pride? What was that? Why couldn't you just say, wow, thank you. But sometimes that gets in the way. But God is trying to develop in us a response that's more in line with who he is. And he wants us to be thankful. So the next time someone meets a need of yours, or offers you a gift or something along those lines, don't refuse it. Just say, wow, thanks. I really appreciate that. Because that's part of what God is trying to do, is develop in us a spirit of thankfulness. Okay, next one. To unite believers through shared blessings and meeting needs. Uniting believers through shared blessings and meeting needs. Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians. And he says something kind of interesting here. Because it sounds like some sort of socialism. But that's not what it is. He says in chapter 8 verse 13 and following. He says, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathers much has nothing left over and whoever gathers little has no lack. In other words, 
Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he says, we're in this together. We're in this together. And so if at this moment you have resources, perhaps, just perhaps, you should be on the lookout for a brother who has a need. And sometimes when you're hurting and others know of it, it's an opportunity for, to, for them to invest in your life and meet that need. We already told you what you're supposed to do with that. Be thankful, right? <laughs> so we have this response then that believers are then united together through shared blessings and in meeting needs. First John 3, 17 and 18. John goes to the heart of it. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, if you see a brother in need and you have the resources to meet that need and you go, well, that's my money or that's my resource. I'm not. I No. He says, whoever closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Remember who's writing this epistle? Who is it now? The book of James, right? Who did we say that James was when we did our opening message? Brother of Jesus. Brother of Jesus, but one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem, right? Well, if you go back into the book of Acts for a few moments... And in chapter 4, there was an interesting situation set up. And this was what was happening. The early church was made up primarily of Jews. They were getting saved. And quite a few of them, as a matter of fact. And that sort of became a threat to the religious status quo, the leadership there. And so what they started to do was saying, if you convert, if you become a believer, we'll kick you out of, of the temple and you won't be able to worship here anymore. Not only that, having been kicked out of the temple, anybody who, who trades with you will threaten their own livelihood by ministering to you. And so there were some that were very fearful about even selling in the marketplace to a believer for perhaps they might be kicked out of the synagogue and lose their ability to sell. And so it was a big threat to the early church. So what was the solution that they found for the early church? Verse 32 of chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, 
And no one said that anything that belonged to him was his own, but had everything in common. Now, this wasn't communism, because this was all voluntary. They said, if I've got it, you can, you can share of it. That's fine. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what they sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And so this was going on, and they were just sharing the resources that God had given to them. Till we come to chapter 5. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought it only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? You go, what? what's the problem here? Well, here's what the problem was. Let's say they sold the land for a hundred bucks and they came and they brought it and they said, okay, divvy it up to the body. But what they gave them was 75. But all the time they were doing it, they were saying, all to Jesus I surrender. And you go, wait a minute. But you were given 75 and saying it was all when we know there was 100 that you sold it for. And so Peter called him on it. And he says, and this is an important point, verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And even after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, if you sold it for 100 and you came and brought 75 and you offered that up and say, this is the portion that we want to give out of the hundred, that would have been fine. But they sold it for a hundred and they came and gave 75 and said, this is what we sold the property for. And he says, it was yours when it was unsold. It was yours when it was sold. Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Great fear came upon the church. Yeah, I can believe that. But God says, you didn't have to share. It was yours when you had it. It was your money after you sold it. Whatever you wanted to give, that was fine. Just don't say that you gave it all when you didn't give it all. Why? What is God trying to do with all this? Build integrity in our heart? Trying to build a heart that's like his? And of course, they carried him and Ananias away and then 
Three hours later, his wife comes and not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, to her in verse eight, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, for so much. She did the same thing her husband had done. Peter said to her, how is that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And then men came in and go, Peter goes, here's another one. Young man came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear came upon the whole church. Why? Did God care whether it was 75 or 100 or two dollars or it, no he was trying to build integrity into their hearts one last principle and this probably is unnecessary with the rest of them but God uses finances to provide direction in our lives What do you have in your hand? Remember the Lord asked that of Moses, what do you have in your hand? And then he used it. What do you have in your hand? How much do you have? Do you have much or little? How are you going to use it? That's the question. Galatians chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And the question is, who are you paying attention to? You're paying attention to the Holy Spirit or you're paying attention to the flesh when it comes to these issues. And he said, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. Now, he's not talking just about finances here, is he? Let's do good. Let's do good. Whatever we have, whatever resources God has given to us, let us do good. And we can see here then that unlike our first perception of this passage in James, where it seems to be completely out of line, we're talking about trials, the area of finances fits right in, like hand and glove. That dealing with finances then is often a revelation to us of the trials that God is bringing into our lives. For the purpose of knowing him better. Right? Because we said the purpose of a trial was to build endurance and let endurance have its perfect work that you may be perfect, complete, and entire. So we see that even in finances, that's the case. God's going to use them to cultivate in us his character. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. 
what seemingly was an aside, but really seems to be to the heartbeat of this issue of trials, that we may turn to you and look to you, whatever we're faced with, and because money is involved in so much of what we do, it also has a venue where we can develop faith. And so Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.